The first lesson from the Acts of the Apostles. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya, Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the night. But what was uttered through the prophet, prophet Joel in the last days it shall be, God declares I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and old, man's, and old men shall dream dreams. Even on, even, on, even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out on my servant, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders of the heavens above and signs of the earth below blood, fire, and vaporous smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes. He is a great and magnificent day, as it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear the words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man you attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did not um, through him in your midst and as you yourselves know, that Jesus delivered up according to a defiant plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised up himself, losing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnessed. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise, wait, the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David, for David did not ascend from the, into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. 
Now, when they heard this, they were cut into, were cut to the heart, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, "Brothers, what shall we do?" And Peter said to them, "Repent and be baptized, every one of you, or every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit." For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore with witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who receive his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. The word of the Lord. Please pray with me this morning. Dearly Father, we thank you for this day. Truly, it is the day that you have made. Give us hearts that rejoice and are glad in it. We ask that you would satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love, that we may be glad and rejoice all of our days. We thank you for your word. Open our eyes that we might behold its wondrous truths. We thank you for your promise that your word does not go forth empty that it accomplishes its purposes. And we ask, Lord, that you would use your word this morning to create faith in our hearts, to strengthen faith, to give us a deeper and truer vision of who Christ is and that how we as spirit-filled believers might witness and testify to his grace and his glory. We do thank you for Jesus. He is the reason that we are here this morning and he is the one that we worship in his name that we pray. Amen. Good morning. If I were to ask you, what are the most important days in the year for Christians? How might you respond? What do you think? Easter. Easter? We just celebrated. We had a wonderful Easter service. It was so, so beautiful. Easter, Christmas. Kids, who likes Christmas? Anybody? Christmas, Easter, the, I actually assumed y'all would say these things, because I know all of us intuitively know these are the two most important days in our Christian calendar, the ones that we celebrate with the most fanfare, the most energy and joy, and rightly so, because at Christmas and Easter, we celebrate the bookends of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's life, his incarnation and his resurrection. And not only do we celebrate those days, but we really celebrate the entire season, Right? We have four weeks of Advent, finally leading up to Christmas Day. And then we have 40 days of Lent, leading up to Easter. If you look on your bulletin this morning, you'll find that today is Pentecost Sunday. And Pentecost, it just means 50th. It's the 50th day after Passover. 
How many of us have had a Pentecost calendar ever since Easter? Counting down the days until this Sunday. Any kids receive gifts this morning for Pentecost? Couldn't, couldn't sleep last night because you're so excited about Pentecost morning? I don't think that's the case for any of us. But you see, Pentecost, rightly understood, should be one of the high watermarks of our Christian calendar. And you can make an argument, and I'm, trying, I'm going to try to this morning, that Pentecost actually is the Christian day that has the most ongoing relevance for our lives as Christians. Our goal this morning, then, is to reestablish Pentecost to its proper place of prominence in the Christian calendar and to understand that it's a fundamental part of the salvation that Christ gives us. See, Easter, Christ's resurrection, isn't complete without Pentecost. We see this in John chapter 7. These are Jesus' own words. John chapter 7, verse 37 to 39, it says this. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So this is Jesus' words, and then later on, the apostle John, he'll interpret what Jesus says, and he says this, This he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet, the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So, the Apostle John tells us, the Spirit cannot be given to Jesus' followers until Jesus himself is glorified. In the book of John, Jesus' glorification is his death and resurrection. So Jesus must first die and come back to life in order for his followers to receive the Spirit. You see, Easter and Pentecost, they belong together. One biblical scholar puts it this way. Pentecost, along with Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension, is an essential part of the once-for-all event in the history of redemption that forms the culmination of his saving work. All he's trying to say is you cannot treat Pentecost as an isolated event. Pentecost must be understood in the context of Christ's life, death, resurrection, ascension, and then giving of his spirit to his people. Seen in this way, Pentecost is actually the culmination of all those events of Christ's life. So Pentecost answers the important questions of why, for what purpose, how, why and what, for what purpose have we been saved. And now that we are saved... How are we then to live as Christians? And so kids, if you're following along, if you're writing your notes and your sermon notes, the main idea for today's sermon is that Pentecost is the gift of the Holy Spirit empowering all in the church to proclaim the gospel and witness of Christ's kingdom. It's kind of long, so repeat it for you all. Pentecost is the gift of the Holy Spirit empowering all of us, every single person in the church, for two purposes. One, to proclaim the gospel, and two, 
to witness to Christ's kingdom. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So first of all, it empowers all who are in the church. Pentecost, the giving of God's Spirit, empowers every single person in the church. We're going to go to the Gospel of Luke first. Luke chapter 24, verses 44 through 49. This is Jesus after he is resurrected, but before he has ascended into heaven to be with the Father. And he says this to his disciples. These are some of the last words that he says to them. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So when Jesus says the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, he's saying the entire Old Testament is about me. Everything that was written in the Old Testament had to be fulfilled in Jesus' life. Then Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures, that is the Old Testament, and he says to them, Thus it is written that the Christ, the Messiah, he should suffer on the third day, he should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father to you. But stay until the city, or sorry, stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Okay, so a lot of us are familiar and we talk about it all the time here at Sanctuary Church, Jesus' last words in the book of Matthew, when Jesus gives his great commission to his followers, says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded to you. Right? That's the mission that God gives to the apostles and to all Christians. But here in Luke, we find out that Jesus says, go, but don't go right away, because you're not ready. He says, go, stay in the city, and wait. Wait for what? Wait for power. The promise of the Father, the power to complete God's mission, there to wait for. The Spirit is the power that they're waiting for. And we'll find out this morning that it's a particular kind of power for this purpose to proclaim the gospel and to witness of Christ's kingdom. But I want to start off this morning just by talking about like a very... I know it seems like a very uh, normal verse or like not, nothing special. It's the very first verse in Acts chapter 2. And it's easy to pass over. But it says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, that's today, they were all together in one place. And it's easy to go, you know, to the rest of the story because that's not where the action is. But I think it's important for us to first remember, or at least to, to look at, remember the fact that all the people are together. They're not by themselves. Jesus says, stay in the city, wait for power. And their understanding is they're not to wait all alone and isolated, but they gather together and they wait. They anticipate the work of God in their midst, expecting that God will not only act, but he will act among them as a collective group. Of course, this isn't to say that the Lord can't and doesn't work with us in our lives when we're by ourselves. Sometimes it is important for us to seek solitude, time by ourselves with the Lord, seeking his guidance in our lives. But I think it's actually the normal work that God does is that he works among us as we gather together. What's important that we as a church regularly gather together in hopeful expectation of the Lord working in our midst. 
And it's important that we don't assume that the natural or normal way that God works us is God speaking to me by myself, that my faith is my own, that I'm in charge of growing my faith in my personal direct relationship with God. That's important. That's necessary. Yet here it says, they all gather together in one place waiting for the Spirit, waiting for the power to come upon them. We can't miss that. And it makes sense because everything about Pentecost speaks to its universality. What I mean, it speaks to the fact that it is for everybody. Because the Old Testament passage that Peter will look to to understand what happens at Pentecost is Joel chapter 2. So Joel is a prophet in the Old Testament, um, probably about four or 500 years before the time of Jesus. And he looks forward to a time in which it says... God will pour out his spirit on all flesh. And then Joel, he clarifies what all flesh is. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. You see, this applies to everybody. Sons and daughters, it doesn't matter what gender you are. Old men, young men, it doesn't matter how young or old you are. All ages are included even male and female servants, socioeconomic status, you know, where you are on the social ladder, it doesn't matter. God says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. The wonderful part about the gift of the Holy Spirit is that not only is it for all flesh, not only is it universal, but it is a uniting force. It's for all people and it brings together all people. Like we said, different genders, different socioeconomic status, even different ethnicities. Right? All those names that sound very unfamiliar to us that Meg read for us this morning, that's basically indicating almost all the ethnicities of the known world at that time. And they have all come together in Jerusalem. And the gift of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost unites all of those people in Christ. The Apostle Paul talks about this phenomenon a little later in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I'll read it for you. It says, Just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. And here's the important part for us. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. The implication is that every single person, if you have been united by faith with Christ, you have also been baptized into the same spirit. And you share in the gifts of the spirit for the good of the church, which is the building up of Christ's body. So right before Paul had said this about all, all of us being baptized into one spirit, he talks about the gifts that the spirit gives to the people in the church. There are a variety of gifts, but it's all the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but it's the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers all of them in everyone. Right? See that power language? It's the spirit that's given to empower people to serve God's church. Verse 7, chapter 12, verse 7. To each of them is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. You see, the ethos that we're trying to encourage, cultivate at our church, at Sanctuary Church, is the idea that every single believer 
Every single Christian is a spirit-empowered person to serve Christ's body for the common good. See, Pentecost, it's a present reality for you. If you've been united to Christ by faith, then his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his giving of his spirit are already yours. Everything you have or everything you need to serve God and his church has already been given to you. There's nothing more. There's no additional experience you need in order to experience more of God's spirit. That's why you're already fully equipped for every good work that God has prepared beforehand for you. So the reason why we emphasize at our church the full participation of every single member is not simply because we need help, which we do, right? We don't have that many people, and so it's like all hands on deck. We need everybody to help. And that's true in one sense, but the deeper reason behind that is because you have been given the Spirit, the Spirit has already empowered you to serve the church in a very special and unique way that God has made you. And so to be a part of a church merely as a passive spectator is what the Bible calls quenching the Spirit. You're actively working against the Spirit's work in your life if you're not serving His church, His body. So given that we in the church are empowered by the Holy Spirit, every single one of us, not a single person is lacking of the Spirit. If you have trusted in Jesus, His life, death, and resurrection, His Spirit is yours. So given that reality, the question then is, what are we as the church, the body of Christ, empowered to do? And we see from our passage this morning, I think there's two things that are quite clear. We are empowered to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we are empowered to witness to Jesus' kingdom. So first, all are empowered in the church for gospel proclamation. So if you go back to the passage that I read earlier from Luke 24, some of Jesus' last words to his disciples, this is Luke chapter 24, verse 46. I'm sorry, 47. It says, Repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of all these things. All right, so Jesus is telling his apostles, you've witnessed everything already that you are intended then to proclaim or share with others. Specifically, he's referring to the fact that Jesus as the Messiah fulfilled all the Old Testament especially in the fact that he suffered for our sake, he died for our sake, and he was raised for our sake. That's the gospel that Peter and all the apostles are commanded to share. And we see this in the first ever sermon preached by the apostle Peter. You you see that? Jesus' last words to his apostles, the Holy Spirit comes, empowers Peter, and the very first thing he does is exactly what Jesus had told them to do. Proclaim that Jesus was the fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament. He was the long-awaited Messiah, and that his death and resurrection were for the salvation of all peoples.
You see, he does acknowledge the fact that the Spirit has come, and it's this crazy picture that we get. It says the Holy Spirit comes. It's like a mighty rushing wind. It filled the entire, it's like uh, overwhelming communal experience. I don't know exactly what this means, but it said divided tongues of fire seemed like it descended on everybody and was just like hanging over everybody's heads. Everybody starts speaking in different languages. Here it's speaking in languages, like known languages, but that the speaker would have no way of knowing, right? For instance, I you know, don't know Italian, Italian at all, but as if all of a sudden I just started speaking in Italian and everybody's marveling and it seems like they're drunk. And Peter does acknowledge the Holy Spirit. He says the fact that the Holy Spirit has come is in direct fulfillment of this prophecy from the Old Testament. But notice, his focus is not on the supernatural experience of the Spirit. Because right away, he pivots from talking about the Holy Spirit to talking about Jesus. Because if you remember in the sermons that we talked about the Holy Spirit, what does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit never directs attention to itself. The Holy Spirit is like a spotlight or a floodlight that always shines more light on Jesus. The floodlight never says, look at me, but it's look at him. And that's what Peter is. Peter, filled by the Holy Spirit, doesn't say, look at me. He doesn't say, look at the Holy Spirit. He says, look upon Jesus. Men of Israel... This Jesus of Nazareth, look upon what he has done. He gets straight to Christ, straight to the heart of the matter. And like the Apostle Peter, all of us are tasked, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to share the gospel with others. But I think I I have to ask, how many of us feel adequate to the mission that we've been given? I'll admit, I often don't. You know, I, I think a lot of times we, we might feel, you might say to yourself something like, you know, I'm not a pastor, right? I'm certainly not like the Apostle Peter, maybe even not like Pastor Daniel. I lack, I don't know what the words to say. I don't, I'm not eloquent or winsome. There's so many questions I think that people could bring up that I I wouldn't know how to answer. So, you know, maybe I'm afraid of messing things up even more. But the message of Pentecost, why it's so important, is it's good to learn more, study more, right? Grow in our understanding of the Bible so that we're able to give an answer for the hope that we have. But the message of Pentecost says that you do not lack anything. You have everything you need to fulfill the mission that God has given you to proclaim his gospel because he has given you his spirit. His spirit is present in your life. So like Peter, you can share about what Christ has done. The spirit empowers us to proclaim, not not to change people's hearts, Right, that's, that's the Spirit's job. That's the, the Spirit's work in the other person's life. The Spirit works in us so that we might proclaim His truth. The rest of the work of changing hearts, of bringing people to salvation, which we pray for and we long for, the reason we pray for it is because it's the work of the Spirit in that person's life.
That's not our task to be able to change people's hearts. God does that. He has done that. He will do that. He has empowered you, though, to proclaim Christ. So first of all, he empowers all in the church, every single one of us, for gospel proclamation. Not only that, he empowers us for kingdom witness. So most of us are aware that the Old Testament predicts you know, for example, like at the time of Christmas, we had a wonderful time looking at all the different Old Testament stories that pointed forward to the coming Messiah. So we all know the Old Testament predicts the coming of a Messiah. What some of us may not be as familiar with, though, is that the Old Testament not only prophesies the fact that a Messiah is coming, but also that the Messiah who comes will bring in a completely new kingdom. Right, the Messiah is the king, and every king has a kingdom. Right, you can't be a king if you don't have a kingdom. And the salvation that the Old Testament points forward to looks forward to so much more than just the Messiah who forgives you of your sins. Not only does this Messiah forgive you of your sins, but he brings an entirely new kingdom. We see this even in the very first chapters of the Gospel of Luke. This is when the angel comes to Mary the mother of Jesus, and tells Mary that she is going to carry the Son of God. He says this, He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. So from the very beginning of Jesus' life, this angel says what Jesus is about is, look, he's going to be on the throne of his father David. He's the son of the Most High. He'll reign over the house of Jacob, and his kingdom, the one that he brings, will last forever. That's the kingdom that Jesus comes to bring us. And the book of Acts shows us that the coming of this kingdom is the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost. When Jesus sends his spirit to all the apostles and the believers at the time of Pentecost, then it launches the kingdom that had been prophesied in the Old Testament and the kingdom that Christ came to bring. So I think a really helpful analogy for understanding what the church is, is think of it as an embassy. Y'all know what an embassy is? So an embassy is, um, one person puts it this way, an embassy is an officially sanctioned outpost of one nation inside the borders of another nation. It represents and speaks for that foreign nation. Right, so here in America, we have embassies from all over the world. And if you want to talk to an official of that nation, then you would go into the embassy. And in that embassy, that nation has jurisdiction, right? Even though it's placed in a foreign country. This is what one pastor says about the church as an embassy. He says, the church is a kind of embassy. Only it represents a kingdom of even greater political consequences to the nations and their governors. And this embassy represents a kingdom not only from across geographic space, 
but from across heavenly time. What he's saying is the church is an embassy from heaven that God has sent into our world in order that we might, as Christians, testify of a better and greater kingdom than the one that we live in. Some of the language that the Bible uses to describe Christians in the New Testament is language like this. You're exile. You're a sojourner, which means like a, a wanderer or a traveler or a pilgrim. You're someone whose citizenship is a heavenly citizenship. You're like those in Hebrews chapter 11 who are foreigners in a foreign land, always looking forward to a greater and heavenly kingdom. And the overarching ruling principle of the kingdom to which we belong, the defining characteristic of Jesus' kingdom is his spirit. That's what it means to be a part of God's kingdom, is the Spirit's presence in our lives. And I think today in our world, there's a lot of confusion about what the Holy Spirit is and what the Holy Spirit does, uh, right? So today is the day of Pentecost. We even have an entire Christian denomination that's called Pentecostalism. And because of people's understanding of it, sometimes people think, you know, being filled with the Spirit, it must mean some sort of like, um, almost like an out-of-body experience, where you're not in control of yourself. It, it's, it's more like, a, it's, vibrant, it's more physically vibrant worship than we typically have on a Sunday. Right? It's like, those people are dancing, laughing, seemingly very joyful. They must be filled with the Spirit. And I'm not saying that that's not true. Like, a person can certainly be filled with the Spirit and joyful and dancing and happy and worshiping and praising the Lord. But that's not inclusive or exclusive of what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I think the best place to look at in the Bible for what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit comes in the book of Ephesians. It's Ephesians 5, chapter 18. And this is what it says. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but instead be filled with the Spirit. Uh, and just one thing to note, this like, uh, Greek verb, it basically means, not, it's not like a one-time action, it's like a, a continual action. So a way to understand it is, don't get drunk with wine, but be continually filled with the Spirit. Be continually filling yourself up with the Spirit. And then it says four things. Four things of what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. First, Address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing, secondly, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Third, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And fourth, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So Paul commands us, be continually filling yourself with the Spirit. Then he tells us four things of what that will look like in your life as you're filled with the Spirit. First, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. A first mark of the spirit-filled Christian then is you go to church. That's it. That's all it says. You're present when God's people are gathered to worship. The first mark of a spirit-filled Christian, it's nothing crazy. It's very normal. It's gathering together in the church for worship. One, as a community, 
But not only that, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Right? A devotion, a commitment to the Lord. As we gather together, we're gathered for a purpose to worship our Lord with sincere hearts of devotion. Third, giving thanks always and for everything to God in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You want to be filled with the Spirit? Give thanks. Not only when things are good, it says, but give thanks to God always and for everything. A Spirit-filled heart is a thankful heart, a joyful heart, even in difficult circumstances. And lastly, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And this is actually the big one. Because it's the one that the Apostle Paul is going to spend the rest of the book of Ephesians talking about. He says, be filled with the Spirit, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, and I'm going to tell you what that looks like in all the different relationships in your life. So Paul then goes on to talk about what does it mean to submit to one another as husband and wife, parents and children, employee and employer, in all the aspects of your life, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Paul says that the way that we treat one another is the clearest expression of the Spirit's work in our life. And the primary way in which we act as witnesses of the kingdom of God. Because it's the way that we treat one another that testifies that we belong to a different kingdom. That we don't act in the same way the world does. But that we empowered by the Spirit, have been set apart for a different kingdom. For example, non-Spirit-filled marriages, so that's the first thing that the Apostle Paul talks about, marriages. I think non-Spirit-filled marriages, they operate on kind of, I think, like ledgers, like a tit-for-tat. I get one thing, you get one thing. Something like, you know, you went on that trip, so now it's my turn. I get to go on a trip. Or you spent that money, so now I should be able to get, spend this money. You wronged me, so I can hold it over you until you somehow make it up to me. I think that's what would characterize a non-spirit-filled marriage. But what does... Paul command us to. He says that husbands and wives are supposed to submit to one another and to serve one another because we submit and serve a greater master, our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul gives us a so much more beautiful, grander vision of what marriage can be. Not a tit for tat, not a ledger, but it's I will give you everything. I will do everything for you so that you can become more like Christ. Non-spirit-filled children. Non-spirit-filled children, perhaps they obey their parents on the outside, but they resent their parents in their hearts. Non-spirit-filled children, they can't wait until the day that they can leave their parents and their authority and then do what they want to do when they want to do it. Yet spirit-filled children understand that their parents are God's gift to them, given for their good, trusting 
that God gives you parents and rules and limits because he loves you. Because your parents love you. There's a biblical scholar, his name is Richard Gaffin. He says this, The filling of the Spirit is not, at least in the first place or primarily, some sublime or memorable experience of the Spirit on the periphery of the lives of believers. Rather, the filling occurs within the everydayness of our lives as it shapes our normal routines and our common responsibilities. The filling of the Spirit ought to leave no area of life untouched. It should permeate and transform the whole of our lives. Pentecost is nothing less than the Spirit-wrought transformation of the entirety of our lives, but not in some like splashy, extravagant way but in the way that we share Christ with others and in the way that we gather together as a church and the way that we treat one another. Let us then not quench the Spirit, but together be filled with the power that every single one of us in the Lord's church has been given and received in order to proclaim the gospel and testify that we are members of a better and greater kingdom. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8 says this, The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray.